Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another podcast. I'm Christina Vogt, Associate Editor for Endocrinology Consultant, which is a part of the Consultant 360 Specialty Network. I'm joined by Dr. Maria Flasheriu, who is a Professor of Medicine and Neurological Surgery and Director of the Pituitary Center at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Today, we'll be discussing her recent systematic review and meta-analysis on fertility and pregnancy and hypopituitarism, which was published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Dr. Flasheriu, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me to talk about this interesting topic. So first, what common misconceptions do patients and even healthcare professionals have about fertility and pregnancy and hypopituitarism? This is a very interesting topic. Maturation and function of reproductive organs is one of the fundamental biological functions controlled by the pituitary gland. Women with hypopituitarism are reported to have fewer ovulatory cycles, lower pregnancy rate, and even higher miscarriage rates when we compare them with women with isolated hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. Furthermore, if women have onset of hypopituitarism during childhood, may have, in addition to the functional problems of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, also morphological disturbances of reproductive organs. So with all that, it has been long thought that fertility is not even achievable in hypopituitarism. Maybe that was true in the past, but now with so many assisted reproductive techniques, many women can achieve fertility and normal pregnancies and we're very happy for that. Women with hypopituitarism receiving adequate hormonal replacement therapy may rarely even conceive spontaneously. However, they often require assistance reproductive technique. Pregnancy is associated with the development of placenta, which serves as an additional and transient endocrine gland throughout pregnancy and is producing estrogen, progesterone, human chorionic gonadotropin, placental lactogen, and placental GH, which has about 96% sequence homology with the pituitary GH. The maternal pituitary gland undergoes morphological changes, leading to alteration in pituitary hormone secretion thereby adapting to the novel demands of pregnancy that aim to ensure adequate fetal growth. I want our participants to remember that there are several changes in hormones throughout the pregnancy. In normal pregnancy, the ACTH progressively increases. There is a slight dip in TSH concentration, mainly in the 9th to 13th gestational weeks. It's an immediate suppression of FSH and LH concentration, continuous decreases in pituitary GH concentration, and of course, prolactin has a marked increase throughout the pregnancy. So with all these changes that we know should happen in the the pituitary and the placenta produces several hormones, there are many unknowns in how to best prepare women for pregnancy and how to best deliver the hormones for the women that are not making it once they are pregnant. When Dr. Villa and me embarked in this systematic analysis, we found 865 citations, including many reviews and hundreds of publications on hypopituitarism, newly diagnosed during the pregnancy, some of them, such as Sheehan syndrome. However, 
were, were very surprised that just a total of 11 and mostly retrospective studies fulfilled the third criteria to have at least two patients and four pregnancies. And even less, just six has, had data on fertility outcome and seven had data on pregnancy outcomes. That is very important to accumulate further data on this. Could you review what kinds of reproductive assistance should be pursued in patients with hypopituitarism who want to become pregnant? Endocrinologists should be aware of all the methods of assisted reproductive techniques. However, we work directly with reproductive endocrinologists and uh, gynecologists and we discuss in multidisciplinary clinic which one would be the best for each patient. Briefly, I want to review, the, so the most frequently used one is in vitro fertilization techniques. That means fertilization outside the body and is the most effective and is often used when a woman's fallopian tubes are blocked or on a man produces too few sperms. The eggs are put in a dish in the lab along with a man's sperm for fertilization and after a few days, the healthy embryos are implanted in the woman's uterus. The second one is the zygote intrafallopian transfer or tubal embryo transfer that is similar to IVF. Very young embryos are transferred to the fallopian tubes instead of the uterus. And then there are more rare techniques used with gamete intrafallopian transfer that involves transferring eggs and sperm into the woman's fallopian tube. So fertilization occurs in the woman's body. And then intracytoplasmic sperm injection often used for couples in which there are serious problems with the sperms, and both of these are rarely used. So the IVF and the zygote intrafallopian transfers are probably the most frequently used for women with hypopituitarism. In your article, you and your colleague noted that replacement therapy and hypopituitarism should always mimic normal physiology, and this becomes challenging with changing demands during pregnancy evolution. How can endocrinologists best navigate prescribing appropriate levels of replacement therapy to pregnant patients with hypopituitarism? This is a great question. Knowledge on pituitary hormone replacement therapy during pregnancy derives mainly from physiological studies on hormonal curves during pregnancy in healthy women. So we don't really have data on patients with hypopituitarism. So we think that a substitution of hormonal deficiency during pregnancy should aim to restore physiological hormonal level and patient well-being. However, as I said earlier, there have been not any randomized controlled trials and the practice guidelines are developed based on the current knowledge on physiology of pregnancy, observational studies, and most likely expert opinion. Pregnancies in women with no previously known pituitary disease may be complicated by the development of acute pituitary deficiencies. So all endocrinologists that are following women with pituitary disease or any type of women with endocrine disorders in general should be aware of the possibility of the development of acute pituitary deficiency also. So in general, we think about each hormone that's included in the hypopituitarism separately. So for example, for adrenal insufficiency, the glucocorticoid replacement in pregnancy should complete the maternal hormonal needs in the context of the changing demands of pregnancy, and in the same time to induce no harm on the fetus. 
Thus, we recommend strongly to use hydrocortisone and not dexamethasone that can cross the placenta. I usually recommend to use a personalized hydrocortisone regimen during pregnancy, and the therapy should be adjusted mainly based on a clinical judgment, closely monitoring the patients for signs and symptoms. And we have to look at over-replacement and under-replacement. So this is for the pregnancy in general. For women with hypopituitism and adrenal insufficiency, definitely labor, delivery, and cesarean sections are all stress situations requiring intravenous administration of increased hydrocortisone doses. For central hypothyroidism that affects probably a quarter of patients with pituitary adenomas and prevalence may increase even more after surgery and radiation, most women with primary thyroid failure need to increase the hormonal replacement about 20 to 50% at the beginning of pregnancy. We don't really know if this fully applies for hypopituitary patients with intact thyroid gland, which might in part respond to HCG stimulation. So we recommend to carefully monitor free T4 and T4 circulating concentrations during pregnancy. And we aim to maintain these levels in the upper half of the normal range. So usually for these hormones outside the pregnancy, we say mid-normal, it's probably okay. For pregnancy, we try to keep them in the upper half of the normal range. Growth hormone replacement therapy is the most controversial topic in the management of pregnant women with hypopituitarism. Growth hormone is not approved for use during conception and pregnancy, not in U.S. by FDA, not in Europe, and there are no really randomized controlled trial on growth hormone effects during pregnancy. And interestingly, successful spontaneous pregnancy have been reported in patients with growth hormone deficiency that did not receive growth hormone substitution. A large study, however, reported positive outcomes in 79% of pregnancies and first trimester abortion in 19% of cases in patients with hypopituitarism, and neither the growth hormone replacement at conception or the treatment during pregnancies appeared to impact pregnancy's complications per se. So I think, at least for now, until more data is clear, once pregnancies is achieved, growth hormone treatment should be elective and discuss with both the gynecologist and the patients and the family, discuss the availability of the data. However, to continue until the patient is pregnant, especially in patients that tried before to get pregnant, I think this would be very important. A large study, the study that I mentioned earlier, showed that the maternal age and the depression were predictors of pregnancy outcomes and not specific hormonal deficiencies per se. And lastly, many women with hypopituitarism have also diabetes insipidus. Desmopressin can be safely used during pregnancy. And in most cases, diabetes insipidus in patients with hypopituitarism is usually diagnosed before pregnancy, but pregnancy may also unmask previously not clinically relevant partial diabetes insipidus. So we need awareness for symptoms. Sometimes they are pretty close to symptoms related to pregnancy, increased thirst, increased urination. So a Clear-cut diagnosis and treatment as needed is very important for these women with hypopituitarism in pregnancy. What areas of future research are warranted in this field? 
we need a lot of research because the data that we're using is basically translate from healthy women. We need populational studies on the exact incidence of normal pregnancies in women with hypopituitarism. The exact dose of glucocorticoids that these women need, it seems we might over-replace most patients, both at baseline and during stress situations overall. So how to increase the doses of hydrocortisone in women in each trimester would be important. Furthermore, more studies on duration and safety of growth hormone in pregnancies are needed. Keep in mind that the pituitary growth hormone secretion continues until mid-gestation, so continuation of growth hormone, at least in the first trimester, would be reasonable if there are no active contraindications. Though not approved, it has been done for many women in the studies that we have reviewed. But we definitely need future prospective studies monitoring the effect of growth hormone use during gestation on both maternal and child outcomes. We also need to study more how to best treat patients that had childhood hypopituitarism that seems to have more complications during the pregnancy. So the longer the duration of the hypopituitarism and the severity might play a role. Ovarian and fetoplacental function apparently depends on puberty-related changes in reproductive organs in these patients. So as a separate topic, Women that had diagnosis of hypopituitarism in childhood need clearly close follow-up and definitely more research is needed for this particular group. And lastly, what key takeaways do you want to leave with endocrinologists on this topic? I have several points that I would like every endocrinologist that's seeing women with hypopituitarism to remember. One, it is at utmost importance to test women with hypopituitarism desiring to become pregnant for possible unknown pituitary deficiencies, as partial mild deficiencies are not always obvious in a routine clinical setting. Nevertheless, they may impact fertility and also plasticity of pituitary hormonal secretion during pregnancy. Furthermore, patients with congenital hypopituitarism may develop additional deficiencies during their lifetime. So diagnosis first. Second, adequate replacement of all pituitary axes is required for the success of spontaneous conceptions or reproductive treatments in these women. Growth hormone replacement therapy is not always required to achieve fertility, but if spontaneous conception is not possible, better reproductive treatment outcomes have been reported in patients receiving growth hormone. Furthermore, hormone replacement therapy should be modified during pregnancies, aiming to restore the pattern of physiological hormone changes during gestation. And third, and very, very important, multidisciplinary adequate management of hypopituitarism often leads to uneventful pregnancies and healthy live births. So I wanted to end with positive news. Thank you again for joining me today, Dr. Flasheriu. Thank you so much for this invitation and for the opportunity to discuss fertility and hypopituitarism in pregnancy. And thank you to our audience for listening to this podcast. For more podcasts like this, visit consultant360.com slash endocrinology.